I recently heard Andrew Roberts described as one of Britain's greatest historians. That's not true. He's one of the world's greatest historians. In fact, I can't think of another historian writing today who even gives him a run for his money. His new book, The Last King of America, The Misunderstood Reign of George III. I'm Cliff May, and I'm thrilled he's with us today, not virtually, but right here in the studio. I'm glad you're with us too, even if only virtually, here on Foreign Policy. Either the U.S. enforces some rules in the world, or there are no Every U.S. president has tried to diminish tension with Russia, has reached out to the Russians. Most of those have failed, especially when Vladimir Putin became the leader. They're still killing guys who joined the jihad in 1979 or 1980 or 1981 who are still in the we game. We are seeing a ramp up in North Korean cyber capabilities over the last decade. Iran is basically putting forth these claims of nuclear innocence, that they are doing nothing wrong, that there are no violations, and that's just factually not correct. You could see mass destruction within Israel as a result of this precision project that Iran has undertaken. Contrary to popular opinion, science is never settled, not really. But perhaps even more surprising, history is never settled, is it? Well, I'd be out of a job if it were. So I'm perfectly happy with the uh, with the status quo as far as that's concerned. No, it's not. I mean, all history is a revision. When people say, oh, you're a revisionist historian, every historian's a revisionist historian because you're revising what went before. And the, the guy, I believe the last biography of George III is written in 1972, which is a long time ago. Has it been on your mind ever since, oh, I've got to get around to this one because well, this is... <laughs> <laughs> Actually, do you know... Uh, um, that's the uh, that's the last cradle to the grave biography. There have been some thematic biographies and things like that in in between, and some good ones as well. But um, actually, no, you're right. I mean, the last time that there was a, a serious one was in 1972, and I read it. I remember reading it when it came out when I was nine um, years old. Yeah. I was a huge history buff even from that uh, period, and I and I remember the holiday I was on when I read it. Oh, really? Okay, yes, you're nine years ago. There was also, of course, the 1994 film, The Madness of King George, um, which also, which also, what I would say, what reinforces the common perception of him that most people probably have. That's right. And it was very much based on this theory that has been around since the late 1960s, that he suffered from the illness porphyria, a physiological illness. Um, but uh, I think I prove um, beyond doubt in my book, especially in the appendix of my book, where I set out all of the uh, of the uh, symptoms and the diagnoses, that in fact, he did not have porphyria. And I explain how people got to that incorrect uh, conclusion as well. I want to come back to that in a minute, but let me ask you this. When, when did you begin to have your uh, understanding of the misinterpretation of George III? And was that only reinforced or was it, um, was it more than that? I know, you, I know there were something like 200,000 pages of new documentary material you were able to review before writing this book. So I'm wondering if you... If, if, You've known you were going to do and this reinforce it, or if you said, okay, now I really understand who he was and why we don't, we don't get it. Yes. There were, well, actually, it's 200,000 pages that the Queen's made available um, 
from what's called the Georgian Papers Programme, but that actually covers all of the Hanoverians. It's only 100,000 for George III in particular. But when I say only 100,000, that's still an absolutely uh, vast amount of, of a cornucopia, really, of totally new sources, new uh, um, literature. So I started this book without having read any of that. And needless to say, during the reading of it, my um, thoughts uh, did change and became much more positive towards the king. These papers, he does emerge from them as a thoughtful and good-natured and well-intentioned man. I'm going to ask uh, for for one quick digression. Probably others are coming. coming. Uh, give people a minute or so on what it means when you say Hanoverian. What, who were the Hanoverians? The Hanoverians started with King George I Um uh, who came to the throne in the early 18th century, and they go all the way through to the um, uh, start of the reign of Queen Victoria in 1837. Mm-hmm. And this is a German background family. Yes, they came from Hanover right, in, uh, right. in, in Germany. They were the electors of Hanover. And because of the um, glorious revolution of 1688, uh, they came to the throne um, when the Stuart absolutists, um, that that monarchy was overthrown in the revolution and they brought in um, William and Mary and then ultimately um, Queen Anne and then the Hanoverians. So, so they were not by any means the most sort of likely to succeed, as it were. They were, um, uh, George I was 51st in line to the throne and he was only made king because he was a Protestant. Um, and that was the key, uh, the key differentiating factor, really, between the absolutists and the uh, and the Hanoverians, who believed in constitutional monarchy. They didn't believe in the divine right of kings. They believed in limited uh, government. And George the um, Third, he he was born and raised in England, and was very much. I think we can say an Englishman in terms of culturally and in, in, in those ways. He was. He was the first Englishman born and bred in England. I uh, sorry. Um, born and educated in this country, he said, when he was opening Parliament for the first time, I glory in the name of Britain. And it was one of the reasons that he was popular was because he didn't speak German with a German, didn't speak English with a German accent. Uh, As others in the family, including the royalty, did. His grandfather, George II, uh, spoke it with a German accent. So did his father, Frederick, Prince of Wales. And George I didn't speak English at all. Mm. So, um, (laughs) you know, he was king of England, but he never bothered to learn the language. So, you know, they were seen very much as foreigners up until George III, who was seen very much as an English uh, gentleman. He dressed like one, he carried himself like one, he spoke like one, and as I say, he spoke with no accent. Uh, going back to his mental difficulties, and if, if you forgive the pop culture reference, if you there was a show, you may have seen a Homeland uh, Carrie Matheson, uh, she suffers from bipolar disorder on that show. Now, an interesting thing there is that the, the, the writers of that show gave her that disorder, but they also um, said or made the character somebody with heightened uh, intuition because of her disorder, particularly if you remember she would stop taking her medicine uh, when there was a really difficult case for her to solve. 
I, I'm, I think that's a myth, and I'm not sure. And, uh, the other part of it is, did, did George have any benefits from his mental difficulties? Um, no, he didn't. They were utterly um, debilitating. And uh, and he was able to see from sort of outside himself what was happening to him. So he was a helpless spectator at his own mental collapse. And unlike uh, Carrie Matheson in that great show, I loved him, Land, um, <laughs> he, um, you know, he didn't have any medication at all uh, to take under any circumstances. They, they gave him aloes and gentium and various uh, other things like that, which did, did him no good at all. And also um, they bled him and they cupped him, which is a disgusting thing where you put a, a glass onto the thigh or the forearm and, and create blisters by heating it up. And this was a form of torture, frankly, for somebody who was suffering, as I say, from a psychiatric rather than a, a physical disease. And if I remember correctly, he had episodes of madness. I think four, and they're in particular. I believe five. Five. Uh, I'm, I'm the first historian, actually, to uh, to say that the 1765 attack was a prodrome, what's called a prodrome attack, where he was incapacitated for four months, but they essentially covered it up at, uh, at Buckingham Palace. He wasn't allowed to see the prime minister and so on, and they said that it was a cold, but there are very few colds that carry on for four months. Do you know, is it, is it usual to have a bipolar disorder that's episodic rather than continual or even, you know, getting worse over time? Yes, it is. Nobody really knows what triggers them. And, uh, and it's impossible to tell what triggers uh, George III's either, because in the very highly uh, emotional and difficult and political moments, such as the 1765 to the end of the American War of Independence and five years on, up taking you up to 1788, he had no attacks at all. And these were these were the crisis moments of his life. Yeah. And then when, when life was a bit easier, uh, and uh, certainly by 1810, when he was popular and happy and the, everything was going extremely well, uh, um, then he had this one that finally, um, his fifth and last attack, which uh, which sent him mad for ten, for five years. For the, towards, no, sorry, for ten years. Ten years, until right? Until 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 death. We don't really know. I I have to say, I think you make the case beyond a reasonable doubt that King George was not. A tyrant, certainly not by the standards of the age, but I'm not even sure that you could say that he was a tyrant by contemporary standards. Well, I don't know. I've just passed a, a truck coming here uh, on, <laughs> the, on M Street, in fact, and one of the things it said on the truck, rather unusual trucking company, I imagine, <laughs> to have this in the first place, was on the side of the truck. It said, "It said um, uh, taxation without representation is tyranny." Now, if that's true, then yes, he was a tyrant because, of course, America was taxed uh, without being represented. But what I don't suppose they could have fitted on the side of the uh, truck <laughs> is that, um, well, all Washingtonians, apart from anything else, are thereby living under a tyranny um, because uh, because of your lack of representation in, uh, in Congress. And also uh, that, of course, the British were willing to give representation. And at the Stamp Act Congress, the uh, delegates from Virginia and South Carolina were ordered not to accept representation if it were offered. So it's all very well saying no taxation without representation. But if you're not going to accept representation, then it's uh, it's a pretty sort of extreme stance to take. And I can't resist the, this digression of my own opinion here. Un unless you're a very old Washingtonian, 
you moved here understanding that the, that the federal district did not have representation in the sense of a senator. You have a non-voting m- member of the House, but you knew that when you moved in. You didn't have to. You, you. Well, and equally, of course, America was a colony for 150 years before 1776. In fact, it had... Uh, it wasn't until the year 1946 that it had uh, more time as an independent um, nation state than it was a colony. And uh, so everybody sort of grew up and, and, and knew the system. And the taxation was unbelievably light. You know, the Stamp Act was, uh, it would raise about two shillings and sixpence per American. Um, it's just it fell on the people who were most, uh, the lawyers and the journalists who were most uh, voluble. Yeah, that's a lot less than the taxation that, say, Bernie Sanders or Elizabeth Warren would like to put on. (laughs) (laughs) It's it's sort of like uh, 5% as opposed to whatever it is that Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren. Uh, They want over 50%. I mean, they they, they clearly do. And they want a wealth tax on unrealized gains. We won't get into all all, all of that. Another quick digression. Um, Do you see British imperialism as better than other imperialisms, French, Portuguese, Spanish, Ottoman. And of course, I would add that we have contemporary imperialisms as well with metropoles in Beijing, Tehran, Moscow, for example. Yes, well, all of the ones that you uh, mentioned were demonstrably worse than the British imperialists. I would add the Italians and Germans uh, as well. What uh, they Belgians, the Belgians in <laughs> Africa. I, I think they come right at the bottom. Yeah. I don't, I'm not expert enough to know yeah. about Iraq, but um, but but the Belgians uh, come right at the bottom, and I think that. Um, uh, that the English-speaking people's um, form of imperialism was uh, pretty much at the top because they did care about the rule of law. I mean, even at the time of the Boston Massacre, the people responsible for it were put on trial and uh, John Adams defended them and they, the ones who were found guilty were punished uh, extremely painfully. And uh, so that's another sign of something that isn't a tyranny, it strikes me, that if you put your own, own soldiers on trial and punish them, uh, that's not what tyrannies do. This is also is a, a kind of a, a pet theory of mine, which is the popular perception is wrong that it's not against the worst tyrants that people successfully rebel. Such tyrants know how to keep the lid on the pot. It's much more rulers who don't crack down hard who don't last well, long. That's so why ex- Gorbachev got so gets overthrown I, and Stalin doesn't. Exactly. The Shah of Iran, yeah. not as oppressive as the supreme leaders of uh, of Iran. Um, I don't think you can even say Batista was a worse tyrant than, than Castro. The, the Russian czar was not as bad as what followed all that. All right. So... It's not. I know it's a pet theory of yours, but also I think Alexis de Tocqueville says much the same thing, doesn't he? Uh, in uh, in Democracy in America, there's a there's a wonderful line about how um, the, um, the the most dangerous moment for a state is when it's trying to liberalize itself. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Do you think that the founders quite understood that George was not a terrible? tyrant, but that they thought, look, we're not going to be able to sell this revolution to the average man without a negative political <laughs> negative political campaigning, if you see what I mean. I think what they needed to do, and what they did incredibly successfully, and they were, in terms of, of politics and certainly propaganda and so many other uh, ways, so much better than the, than the British government at the time. What they needed to do um, was to, and what they genuinely believed themselves to be, was the... Um, 
the inheritors of the mantles of the 1642 revolution against Charles I and the 1688 revolution against James II. And so they very much had to sort of push George III, a constitutional monarch and a Hanoverian, into this kind of Stuart absolutist um, uh, box, which they could only do through uh, really... um, uh, coming up with these 28 charges in the Declaration of Independence, an awful lot of them were ex post facto rationalizations, some of them massive exaggerations, uh, and some of them just completely untrue. There's one uh, where he's accused of, uh, of taking people across the oceans for trial, and absolutely not a single American was ever taken across any ocean for trial. I think you've said that there were two indictments that were perhaps valid. What were those? uh, The 17th, which was about uh, taxation, and the 22nd, which was about Parliament having the right to veto American legislation. And in and of themselves, those two were enough to justify the American Revolution. But but, by by the way, and I'm making your point, um, the taxation, one could say, was asking Americans to pay, I hate to use the expression, their fair share <laughs> because it, the, the taxes were going to be spent in America or to make up for a, to, to, pay, to, to make up for a war that was the money that was spent on a war in America. That's right, and and a victorious war, and the war that obviously knocked the French off the uh, North American continent. The cl- closest French army was in Haiti, a thousand miles away, and in a sense, that was the thing that gave the American uh, Revolution its impetus because they knew that they weren't under uh, threat from France any longer. But yes, you're right. All of that money was going to be spent on uh, on battalions that were going to um, protect the uh, the colonists from uh, from the West, from the Native Americans in the West. It, it, does it strike you that the that, that the founders thought we have a a, a brilliant idea for a, a new form of a government, a republic with a small r, republican government, and it would be such a shame to theorize and write about this and not take the opportunity that's before us to p- try to put this into action? action. Is that maybe well, what they thought? I think that, um, yes, of course, uh, some of the um, the more um, profound thinkers of the uh, amongst the founders, uh, of whom you had very many. I mean, it was extraordinary, the galere, the galaxy of talent that all came together in that decade of the 1770s is really, truly extraordinary and, and not really seen in history. Uh, it, very often you have to go back, uh, well, really to ancient Greece, it strikes me, to uh, in the 5th century Athens to see such an extraordinary coagulation of uh, of brilliant people. Um, But even if they'd come up with this brilliant idea, which they did, it still took incredible guts to take on the most powerful nation in the world. You know, I mean, you are putting your life on on the line. Right, right. But I'm trying to think of their motivation, because why do that if they understand we're not really living under a tyranny, we have some better ideas, but... No, but I don't think that the the, the, uh, brilliant idea was um, this concept of the new um, form of uh, government so much as the knowledge that they were going to do better if they are Um, self-governing. Independence was the drive, the the sense, that sort of uh, emotional, incredibly powerful human desire to be master of one's own fate and not to have a uh, a country 3,000 miles away uh, sort of ultimately overseeing you 
you. Uh, it was called the Parent company, uh, Country, which I think after 150 years of being a, a colony, you know, quite understandably, they didn't want to have a parent country so, any longer. So there was a divergence in the, in, in the sense that Americans had those in America were less British in America than they were Americans culturally in various ways. They felt there a, a different identity welling up that they wanted to express. And understandably so after such a long period. Um, there was also a strong sense that the um, uh, a sort of um, a sense in the colonies that the British were looking down on them, thought of them as second-class citizens, essentially were um, uh, not that they were, you know, financially lording it over them so much as um, they didn't feel appreciated enough, um, I think it's fair to say. Partly that's true. In fact, uh, several uh, parliamentarians in both the House of Commons and the House of Lords thought that at the outbreak of the war, that it would be very easy to um, to you know, beat the Americans because they were irregular f- troops and that they weren't um, they weren't brave and all of this kind of thing. So, so there was a sense of uh, of not appreciating them, but that's not true of King George the Third. He he didn't underestimate the Americans. Another digression. This is a little bit unfair because you could spend, it, I'm sure, an hour or a book on this. Are you persuaded that the nation state is necessarily better than an empire as a form of government? Um, I'm not. No, I think that um, that for a lot of, for the majority of the history of the British Empire, at least, um, I think the majority of people uh, led better lives than um, than they had hitherto. And so um, so I think the British Empire can be defended in a way that unfortunately absolutely nobody else agrees with me. <laughs> no. um, but uh, and, and you wouldn't believe the passions of some people who uh, uh, who disagree. Um, but nonetheless, I think that demonstrably again and again, especially with the uh, British um, the British record in India, for example, um, you can prove that the vast majority of people for the vast majority of times um, of the time uh, led um, demonstrably better lives. Did the founders have any ideas that actually were so novel, so original that British uh, intellectuals would not have thought of them or or, or were taken aback by, I mean, Edmund Burke or somebody like well, that? Well, funny enough, of course, there was an enormous um, interplay of ideas between Edmund Burke and the and the um, radical Whigs and the uh, and the Americans. Um, the founding fathers and the radical Whigs were, um, and you couldn't really slip a piece of paper between them uh, for a lot of the time. When in the debates over the repeal of the Stamp Act, for example, um, you know, Burke was standing up for America, and they were, and in America they were watching very closely things like the trial of John Wilkes, um, and the uh, and the whole political process. So there's a there's a a, a great deal of uh, interaction of thoughts and ideas between those uh, between those groups. Are there uh, are there is there anything that George III might have done? that he decided not to do or that he didn't think to do that might have kept the um, America within the empire? Well, yes. I mean, if he was able to look forward 50 years, for example, he'd have been able to have seen, or 60 years actually in this case, he'd have been able to have seen the self-government that Britain gave Canada 
um, in the in the Durham report and so on. So um, if he had right at the beginning, at the time of the Stamp Act, actually said, look, why don't you unify as a as a country rather than have thirteen separate provinces, and why don't you um, have your own parliament and a bit like Ireland, you know, have keep me as the king, but um, with with ultimate um, you know veto powers and so on, but uh, to all intents and purposes become a self-governing nation. But that never crossed his mind or indeed anybody's mind really, apart from some of the founding fathers towards the late period who went to him and or at least who, who wrote to him and said, um, they didn't talk about unification, but they said, uh, look, um, why don't you go against the um, government, the Lord North's government, and um, and essentially, you know, stay as our king, but we become independent. And that which of the founding fathers? Uh, well, you get that, in, that? In, in, that's in two of the petitions yeah. of 1774 and 1775. And so that really, um, uh, that really was a impossibility, unfortunately, in a sense, because George III was a constitutional monarch, and he absolutely couldn't go against the um, the government and the cabinet, which had a majority in the House of Lords and the House of Commons. Well, this was some of the founders. The, uh, the anger was more directed at the parliament, really, than Much the more. king, yes. right? And uh, they called the army the parliamentary army. Yeah. You know, it's not until the July of uh, 1776 that um, it starts to, um, that they recognize that it's it, can't any longer just be the parliament they're fighting against. And by that stage, you know, blood has been shed for 14 months. And so, of course, that's uh, it's going to take a more radical uh, political stance against the king, who uh, was the head of state ultimately of both countries. So some of the founders did have... Um uh, an antipathy towards the idea of of a, an inherited monarchy, a dynasty, and an aristocracy, even if they were somewhat aristocratic themselves in their in their in their lifestyles. Am I yes. wrong? Yes, and you also get um, Thomas Paine, of course, who mm. um, who in his uh, Common Sense uh, pamphlet, which is the biggest best selling pamphlet uh, of the 18th century, um, argues very much against the whole concept of monarchy. Ex- says that it's absurd and ridiculous, and so on. Um, blames it actually on the Jews. He tends to blame a lot of things, by the way, Thomas mm. Paine, on the Jews. There's mm. a definite anti-Semitic um, uh, line in his reasoning. Um, and then actually in a different part of common sense, uh, he talks about uh, the king being the pharaoh of, of England, which should remind mm. you that in fact it wasn't the Jews that invented monarchy. The pharaohs had one <laughs> uh, thousands of years earlier than that. Uh, was there ever uh, an independence movement that rose up in Canada, as in, in the U.S., or that just never never occurred? Well, um, it it had a, such a large French um, minority there that after the which after the Quebec Act of 1774 was um, given civil and religious uh, freedoms, um, that actually the um, the uh, British settlers of, uh, of of Canada preferred very much to stick with the um, with the crown because they were afraid of uh, Canadian of a French uh, well, challenge to there, there was always a sort of latent fr- French uh, challenge but the great thing about it is that in because of the Quebec Act um, that that brought over a lot of um, French Quebecois to be loyal to the crown there, there is there's no uprising by the French. Um, for example, which is obviously something that was um, was um, on everybody's mind. 
Coming back to uh, to George III, you make very clear that, uh, contrary to popular conception, he was actually a very cultured man, among, among yes, other Yes, yes. Well, this is another uh, complaint that I have about Thomas <laughs> Paine, of course, is that he called him the royal brute of Britain. And there was absolutely nothing brutish about this man. He was incredibly cultured. His, uh, he set up the Royal Academy. He set up the, uh, bought half of the pictures for the Royal Collection. He played um, four musical instruments, uh, invited Handel and Haydn and Mozart to play for him. Um, he had a huge scientific collection. The star Uranus, uh, planet, sorry, Uranus, was originally named after him because of his interest in astronomy and the fact that he paid for the biggest telescope in the world uh, to be used by Herschel. He was a, um, a great um, supporter of the architects, the great architects of the neoclassical Georgian uh, tradition. He was um, somebody who, again and again, um, well, I mean, his library, of course, the the, the centre of the British Library, the, those five stories of glass um, uh, building with the eighty thousand books that you see if you ever go to the British Library, that that's George III's library, and you know this is a this is a man of immense um, culture, and uh, and yet again for wartime propaganda reasons that are perfectly understandable, Tom uh, Paine called him a, a royal brute. Mm. You also write that the... Uh, oh, also, sorry, called him a sot, and a, a, a sot, which meant an alcoholic, oh. which was true of Thomas Paine, but <laughs> uh, not of George III, who actually ate and drank very frugally. Yeah, you also write that the concept of honor was very central to George III. Talk about what you mean by honor, what did he, how, how he perceived the honor as a concept. Yes, I think um, it, it sort of overlaps very much, especially in the 18th century, um, with d dignity and the sense of the dignity of the crown. So when he gave his word of honor, when he promised somebody something, um, he considered it to be absolutely vital that uh, that, that thing happen. And when on the occasions um, he had, for example, offered uh, or promised an honor to somebody, as in a, 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 a sinecure or a role um, or a title to somebody, and then the government comes in and says no. Um, he got incredibly sort of personally uh, upset about it because he felt that his honour, his dignity, was um, at um, uh, at risk. And so you see this again and again that um, that he was immensely defensive about what he thought of as his honour. There's so much in this book that I didn't know and that I learned from, and so I have to cherry pick. But one of one, this struck me that uh, you wrote, and I think you quoted someone, I forget who, that the American Revolution was also both a civil war and a religious war. Yes, this was a fascinating aspect of it that I, I must admit I didn't realize at all until I started to research this book. But um, yes, the... Um, uh, the Protestants, especially the dissenting Protestants um, of uh, of New England in particular, were under the impression that the king, who was a devout Anglican, um, was actually a kind of proto-Catholic, a crypto-Catholic, should, should I say, who wanted firstly to impose the Anglican bishoprics 
on uh, America, of which there was absolutely no evidence whatsoever. You know, in these in these hundred thousand uh, pages of his doc- documents, one would expect at least a whisper of all in all the letters that he wrote. You know, there was no whisper that they were attempting to to do that. Let alone that he was a Catholic. You know, he he was actually um, somebody who prevented Catholic emancipation in 1801. So, you know, it it was tremendously unfair but it was used as something especially once the Quebec Act in as I say in 1774 at this key moment just before the outbreak of the American Revolution gives religious uh, liberty to the Catholics of um, Canada mm-hmm. the French Catholics of Canada and that that is something that the uh, that the Quakers and the Presbyterians and uh, and um, Baptists and so on in America uh, thought might be imposed on them but with no with no uh, justification whatsoever this is an odd thing it seems, seems to me because he, the king was an Anglican and you had to be an Anglican to be in Parliament in in, in Britain at that time yes you had the test yes right. you had to declare an oath, which made it, which which is a complication if Americans were to be part of a in the British Parliament rather than an American Parliament, because so many Americans were either Catholic or or not Anglican or Puritan, other things. America was a more diverse society at that point. Whatever else you you you, you think of it. Um, and, and anyway, I just think it's an but interesting they, aspect. It of is it. an interesting aspect. But they, yes, yeah, so they, they wouldn't have been allowed to have uh, uh, sat in Parliament. But frankly, if we were going to give a 100 seats or something in uh, the Westminster Parliament, we'd have had to have dealt with that religious issue right. as well. And you were able to uh, sit in the legislative assemblies of the provinces um, if you had other religious um uh, if you were Protestant, at least. Right, right. Was there was there fighting actually? Uh, I don't, this is, uh, I think, not well known between loyalists to the king and patriots in America. Maybe talk a little because that's a part of history people don't know in terms of fighting. And of course, what happened to the loyalists at the end of the revolution is something that is not very well known. It seems to me. Yes, well, it was. It was always assumed by the British, and this was one of the many mistakes, many um, blunders that they made in the American War of Independence. It was always assumed that the one third or so of Americans who were loyalists um, and uh, didn't sign up for the Declaration of Independence would actually be an important military factor in the war. Um, But after the Battle of Kings Mountain down in uh, South Carolina, um, this was clearly not going to be the case. There were some areas of the uh, colonies which were dominated by the loyalists, but not for long and not powerfully enough for them ever to be able to create an army of any great worth. So, um, uh, yes, it was a it was a sort of misunderstanding by the royal governors who told the king and the cabinet that they were going to be an influence on the war, which they frankly weren't. But there was a c- civil war s- aspect to this because... Um, uh, which, which unfortunately, like every civil war, sometimes resulted in atrocities uh, committed by the loyalists and against the loyalists. Mm. Um, and you also, of course, get the point where at the end of the war, the loyalists who are all crammed up into New York uh, City, which was always a loyalist uh, city, mm. um, had to get out. 
to uh, Canada and Africa and various other the Caribbean, places. Uh, and the Caribbean, exactly. And India, ultimately. You know, uh, much of the Indian Empire um, that uh, was created in the 1790s and later was created by American loyalists. Yes, and they um, and all over the all over the empire, I think you see quite a lot of of um, American loyalists in Australia uh, as well. You know, they get everywhere, especially Canada, and they're hardworking and obviously you know loyal and um, tend to um, tend to do very well actually outside uh, of America. But what they also did was, of course, to um, bring out, as well as the 80,000 or so loyalists, uh, bring out the black uh, slaves, the uh, escaped slaves who had um, uh, were taken to their freedom in, in Canada and ultimately also uh, some went back to Africa. And uh, George Washington tried to prevent that and get his own slaves back, but, uh, but wasn't able to because the, um, the British stuck by their agreement with the slaves. Is, this is another digression. Is there a benefit in having uh, a monarch in the sense of, of having somebody who represents the the, 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 the the nation, the country, that is not the head of government? In other words, you, both those are combined in the president, and that means you have both Biden and Trump who are head of, guess, head of state and head of government, if you see what I mean. Yes, well, it, it's, it's worked for us anyway. Um, the, uh, I mean, partly that's because of the personality and the character uh, and the sense of duty of Her Majesty the Queen over the last 75 years. But it's worked um, several times before that, including, of course, with her father and, and grandfather. What it also means is that you have a power above politics. So if you get into a difficult situation, Watergate, for example, um, then there is somebody who can dismiss the um, the top politician of the day. And uh, that would, that's, that's been very helpful also as a sort of bulwark for democracy and uh, and um, freedom in Britain. You know, you you have got an extra uh, layer of the constitution, which in a crisis can be called upon to uh, protect the rights of ordinary Englishmen. Yeah, I mean, a, a country like uh, such as Israel has tried to sort of replicate that in having a president who and a prime minister, and the president's functions are mainly ceremonial, right? That's right. Yes, I mean that's a, that's a much closer thing. Yeah. But obviously, you couldn't in Israel have a hereditary um, uh, president. Solomon David, I don't know. Yeah, no, 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 absolutely. <laughs> yes, you've got the you've got the history for it, but just not recently. <laughs> Um, you mentioned before that George didn't believe in the divine right of kings, and I think that's worth exploring for a minute, and that he was thought of himself as a patriot king. You just might want to unpack those ideas a little bit. Yes, the, the idea really comes from Bolingbroke, Lord Bolingbroke, the political philosopher of the 1740s, who uh, wrote a book entitled The Idea of the Patriot King, um, and um, very much sold the idea to George III's father, um, Frederick Prince of Wales, whereby the uh, king is somebody who stands above politics, which is not what George II did. George II was very much in favour of the Whig party and a supporter of it, but stands above politics is um, is non-partisan entirely um, represents the, uh, the the people and and the um, desires and the will of the people um, and is uh, 
is the sort of personification of the nation, as it were. And it's a very powerful idea. The only drawback is, of course, that when you try and put it into practice, uh, how do you go about that? But um, but as a philosophy, it's one that was very powerful on uh, George III because, of course, he worshipped his father who died when George III was 12 and, um, and very much sort of took on the ideological thoughts of his father, which, as I say, came from Bolingbroke. You just used the phrase Whig, and I think I'm one of many Americans who does, hasn't admitted before, but I will now. I've never really understood what a Whig is. <laughs> well, I can understand because it's a very amorphous term, which changes a lot during... People during say, he's very Whiggish. What no. do you mean? <laughs> it, uh, it, can mean, it can mean positive and negative things at the same time, of course, which also makes it quite uh, complicated. When, when somebody says he's very Whiggish, they tend to mean he's, he's quite witty and uh, and sort of old-fashioned and uh, um, con- sort of uh, connected to the to the old ways, but in a in a uh, with a good spin on it. Um, however, by the time of George the Third's uh, accession. 80 years after the Whig, um, the great Whig victory of the Glorious Revolution, that was a Whig revolution, um, the Whigs had actually descended somewhat into just a bunch of aristocratic cousins who um, who felt entitled to rule Britain forever. And they would not have any Tories, any independents, any Scots, anybody from outside this Whiggish circle to uh, have any positions in uh, government whatsoever. And so when George third came in and wanted to overthrow that um, sense of complete um, governmental control, uh, then it set the scene for really what turned into the 50 years of a struggle between the Whig oligarchy and uh, George III. At, when the American Revolution um, succeeded, when the, when the British suffered defeat, did the British public blame George III? Did, were they angry? Were they, they interestingly enough? No, they didn't really. Um, the Whigs, uh, the Whig, the radical Whigs. There you are. That just made it even more complicated mm, yeah. <laughs> because you've got the moderate Whigs and the radical Whigs. Um, but the radical Whigs certainly blamed uh, George III, and uh, Charles James Fox, their leader, uh, would refer to the king as Satan um, in private. And uh, so there was a there was a huge um, uh, parliamentary clash over who's to blame. But then Charles James Fox entered into for simply for um, in terms of numbers in the House of Commons, you know, it was a it was a, a solely incredibly uh, cynical pact. He entered into a pact with Lord North. And the Fox North coalition then imposed um, their, or tried to impose their will on George III, forcing George III to appoint somebody who, just to make it even more complicated, (laughs) William Pitt the Younger, who was a Tory, was the first Tory prime minister, but considered himself to be a Whig all his life. And I guess we should mention, as long as you wrote on, he was incredibly successful. He started very young as prime minister, remarkably, that, and remarkable that he was chosen that young. And then he was remarkably adept and skillful as a prime minister. That's you know? right. He was offered the premiership when he was 23. He turned it down but became prime minister when he was 24, which is extraordinarily young, even for those days. And... Um, 
uh, and he was um, also, you know, highly talented and uh, and uh, had a fantastic head for figures. He could make speeches for hours, just remembering every every last shilling of uh, public expenditure. Uh, and his father, William Pitt the Elder, had been the Churchill figure of the age, essentially. And so he had this thing, this uh, this great brain, this. Uh, a very good um, oratory, capacity for oratory, uh, and this famous name, and that was why the king trusted him in uh, in 1784 to um, 1783 to have this uh, this sort of extraordinarily young man as prime minister, and then he went on to continue to be prime minister for almost the rest of his life. And his view of the American Revolution, did he have very specific yeah, he, advice on that? Well, he, he he of course by the time he became prime minister, it had been lost. Uh, so he wasn't embroiled. One of the reasons, actually, that he became prime minister was that all the older generation uh, had been involved in the war in some way, and therefore had, you know, the mud had uh, spattered onto them. He was so young that he couldn't be blamed for uh, for any of it. His father had been quite pro um, American, the American uh, colonists, and he made a few speeches early on in favor of peace. And so, you know, he wasn't in any way, uh, as I say, bound up with the defeats and the disasters of the previous decade. And of course, we should mention following the, a few years later, following the disaster of the, of the, uh, of the loss of the colonies in, in America, uh, there were victories, uh, the most important being um, Waterloo uh, with the defeat of uh, Napoleon in 1815. That's right. And uh, unfortunately, by then, the king had... Um, uh, he'd gone blind. He was deaf. He was senile, and he was mad. And so he and the, and the blind and deaf—that's not part of the bipolar. That's, not, that's something else that we don't know what no, it causes. That's that. well. I mean, the same things that yes, exactly. Uh, uh, he had it, it's such a tragic story. He had these uh, cataracts in his eyes, and his doctors put leeches on his eyeballs to um, to try to make it better. How it could possibly have been made better, I have no idea. I'm not a doctor, but nonetheless, I suspect it didn't do any good whatsoever. Before I go to my my final question, so are there are there important theses or aspects to the book that I haven't raised in these questions that you think a listener and a, and a prospective reader, because people should get the book. I mean, this book is almost what seven hundred pages long. No, it's a huge amount. <laughs> no, it's a, a lot of that is notes, bibliography, index, and it, looks, so. it reads very fast. It's a wonderful. <laughs> people should read it. They will learn so much yeah. American history and British history from doing so. So I'm I'm pushing that. But if there's a major point that I've not raised, I, I should think, give you a chance. I think maybe his legacy. Um, I think yeah. his greatest legacy really was the modern monarchy. A lot of people put that down to uh, Queen Victoria, yeah. but it strikes me that actually George III was the person who bought Buckingham Palace, he bought the Gold State Coach, he invented the Royal Walkabout, he made Windsor a uh, central part of uh, of the um, whole you know, royal tradition. He uh, um, invented the Trooping of the Colour annually, the uh, Royal Enclosure in Ascot. And he was, like uh, our present Queen, um, a man of frugal tastes and um, financially prudent, uh, very hardworking and uh, committed to duty. So I think, you know, if you if you look at uh, his, um, his descendant, uh, Her Majesty the Queen, you can see a lot of the best parts of uh, King George III. I, I know you're you're asked this, and it's an unfair question, but people are probably curious to know your thoughts. Which is, would it have been better if the revolution had failed? 
<laughs> no, because you became the most powerful nation in the world uh, afterwards. Well, but the empire know. would have been more powerful, perhaps, oh, if we'd, uh, if with we'd, America as part of it. Cliff, if we, <laughs> I tell you what, you might well be out of a job if, uh, if that had happened. Let me explain why. Let me explain why. Okay. Uh, because if the American... Uh, what became the American Republic and the British Empire had stayed together uh, throughout the 19th century and early into the early 20th century, there is no way that the Germans could possibly have declared war in 1914, which meant that there'd be no Bolshevik revolution, there would be no um, no Nazis, uh, and ultimately <laughs> the world... Benefits to the th- there would have been some benefits, apart from for you, obviously, yeah. because, uh, because the Federation of uh, Defense of Democracies wouldn't have been necessary because the whole world would have been a democracy. There's other ways I could have made a living, I'm sure. (laughs) 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 All right, then um, another digression, but perhaps the last. I I said I I couldn't think of an historian living writing today that that matches that matches you. Now I'm a huge admirer of Paul Johnson, but I think he's what 93, and I don't know that he's as productive as he was. I, there's Simon Sibig Montefiore, who I think you know and admire a great, great deal. Great friend, and I, his biography of Jerusalem is an absolute masterpiece. And I agree. Are there other living historians you admire? Yes, dozens and dozens really? of them. Okay. I invite them to my, I'm president of the Cliveden Literary Festival and I have them all uh, down. <laughs> and the idea that I would start to uh, to mention some and therefore not <laughs> others would be so painful for me. Will, in the, it would not. cross my mind, but there are so many others. And uh, I'm glad you mentioned two who, uh, who are friends of mine. Yeah. But, uh, uh, Both but, British, by the way, and I have more. To, okay, but go ahead. Yes. Yeah, no, I think we, I think we we do um, produce good historians. I think that uh, there's a lot of, you know, objectivity that we're taught at university, which is very um, central to the reader's trust, uh, really. Um, so, uh, so yes, I, I but I, it would be so invidious to mention <laughs> any others. So, uh, does, and that tradition continues. And the reason I ask that, I'm sure you realize, is because on the American campuses. I see the ideological and political drive pushing aside good historiography increasingly. And let me just add to add before you comment on this. I think we're in an age in the U.S. not just of fake news but of fake history. And the most egregious example that comes to my mind is at my alma mater. I spent about half my full-time journalistic career at the New York Times. Never did I anticipate it would become what it's become today, particularly the 1619 Project where a non-historian who hasn't re- who hasn't read the literature decides you know what 1776 is not the start of America 1619 is when they brought the first slave I'm going to assert that I'm not going and plenty of I'm not going to and I'm going to do it as a, as a, as a reporter not as a historian and I'm not going to really take into account what historians believe and that wins a Pulitzer prize and is now being pushed into our schools which I would argue are deteriorating rapidly and dangerously well all I can say is that in the 100,000 pages of uh, of the king's papers that um, have been released there is not a single sentence that supports the central contention of the 1619 Project, which is that the American War of Independence and the American Revolution was started by the founding fathers in order to retain slavery. Um, of course, in Britain, we hadn't got slavery since uh, since Magna Carta banned it. Um, in 1772, the Mansfield Judgment uh, ensured that it never came to our shores, 
However, there were no plans, um, wrongly, sadly, obviously, uh, for Britain to abolish the slavery in the American um, colonies. None whatsoever. No, stopping the slave trade was easier than abolishing slavery and freeing slaves. It's just easier to do. Well, we, we did one in 1807, but it took us another 20 plus years to do the next part in, uh, in 1833. And this is an and you, of course, had to fight an extraordinary, catastrophic civil war with six hundred thousand plus killed over this particular over the same issue in the mid nineteenth century. You know, so so uh, no, I I don't see I don't see I haven't seen anything that supports the this central contention of the sixteen nineteen project. And this is an important point of intellectual history, I believe. I'm going to assert it, and you can tell me if you think I'm wrong. And people, we believe slavery is wrong. Why do we believe slavery is wrong? This was a moral innovation of people like William Wilberforce, white evangelical British Christians who for the first time in history said, you know what, slavery, this ancient and ubiquitous practice is a moral abomination. That was an amazing thing to think. No, I, tell me where else in the world anyone wrote or said that. No, before. exactly. And actually, funny enough, George III did buy those books, those abolitionist books. They're in his library of 80,000 uh, um, books. And when he was Prince of Wales, he wrote um, an essay which completely took to pieces all the arguments in favour of slavery. And uh, and actually, I've got, the, I've got the sentence. Do you mind if I, I read I've the sentence? Because <laughs> this is a sentence from his one of a very long essay, as I say, denouncing... Um, slavery. And he says, what shall we say for a European traffic in black slaves? The very reasons urged for it will be perhaps sufficient to make us hold such practice in execration. For an inhuman custom wantonly practiced by the most enlightened, polite nations in the world, there is no occasion to answer them, for they stand self-condemned. George III never bought or sold a slave in his life. He never um, had shares in the companies that did that. He, um, as we mentioned, signed the legislation that abolished the slave trade. And so I think he should not be seen on the same sort of moral uh, level as um, as people who did none of those things. And I want to remind listeners as well that s slavery was not – the Ottoman Empire was a great slave trading empire. They took slaves from the Slavic countries. The, there's a reason for that those two words sound alike. They took slaves from Britain. They took slaves from Ireland. They even took slaves from uh, from Iceland at, 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 very, at various points, as well as African slaves. Um, in huge, huge numbers. I just point that out when Do, people and say. And also, I think it's worth pointing out the um, the many, many men of the Royal Navy who died yeah. fighting against um, the slave trade. You know, uh, because right. these slavers would fight back. Yeah. Um, and uh, and when they did, you know, it it got. It this got is when they went to slave ships and tried to liberate the slaves right. on the ocean. And of course, British were also taking slaves in the Mediterranean uh, by the uh, the, the bays, uh, the, the the pashas of the Ottoman Empire in North. Africa. Exactly, yes, the Bay of Tunis and yeah. so on, yeah. And so uh, and so you do have Royal Navy personnel dying, fighting against slavery, which is um, an important aspect of the story, it strikes me. All right, final question, extra question, not an, another unfair one, because historians shouldn't be asked to predict the future. It's hard enough to predict the past. But <laughs> <laughs> when, when, when Queen Elizabeth, who I, who I think... I admire, we all admire passes. Charles is next in line. He's 72, not as old as Joe Biden or <laughs> Donald Trump. Will he wear the crown for a few years or will he immediately pass it on uh, to William? 
And if so, what kind of king would will, will William be? Will he be a patriot king like George III? Um, the, um, that, that's not how it happens. Okay. Um, the minute that Her Majesty breathes her last, um, Prince Charles becomes King of England. Right. Uh, he's been waiting for very but He long. could abdicate if he wanted to. There's no question no, of him okay. wanting to do that. He, uh, um, he has been waiting a very long time. He's got lots of ideas uh, about what to do when he's King of England. and He, he was just in uh, Cuba, was he not? Um, he's he's travelled every country in the uh, world. Cuba. It's next to impossible Sorry. to think of. Uh, <laughs> um, well, one place he hasn't gone to is Israel, though. Um, of course, the Foreign Office are terrible over all of that. But nonetheless, um, no, I think he's going to be a fine king. And then, of course, we have William and, and Kate after that. I love the idea of the Patriot King, by the way. I think it has uh, modern resonances, uh, especially with a constitutional monarch. And um, no, I look forward to the day when, uh, when first... King Charles the Third, and then um, and then King William the Fifth, um, become the Patriot King. Very good. Thank you so much for being here. It is always a treat and a pleasure to me to see you, to talk to you, to learn from you. And um, good luck with your book tour. I hope it's not too too exhausting. And uh, your productivity, by the way, is amazing. I barely get through one of your books when you come out with the next one. (laughs) Thank you very much indeed, Cliff. I've really enjoyed this conversation. Thank you for listening to Foreign Policy. If you found the program worthwhile, we suggest you subscribe to Foreign Policy on iTunes, Spotify, Google Play, Stitcher, or wherever you prefer to listen to your podcasts. Send us your feedback, your questions, your ideas to foreignpolicy at fdd.org. For more information about this episode and others and about our distinguished guests, visit us online at fdd.org. Until next time, I'm Cliff May, and you've been listening to Foreign Policy.